0: Welcome to Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers Jones.
1: Hello, I'm Giles Vickers Jones, and welcome to Bull by the Horns, sponsored by Shy Aviation. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a hugely successful individual who has taken massive risks to reap incredible rewards. I'll be asking them how success has affected their careers and what inspires them to keep on taking risks. My guest this week is creator and producer of Channel 4's iconic breakfast TV show, The Big Breakfast. Um, He also created Survivor, which is a global phenomenon, amongst other things. He's also, well, I guess he's a media mogul. He's been a long-time friend, an absolute inspiration. Give it up for Mr Charlie Parsons. Charlie, hello, my friend. How are you? I'm
0: good, thank you. Yes, very good, thank you.
1: So we're in the middle of another lockdown in the world, it's a strange time so we'd normally do this face to face, normally over a lunch or an egg and sausage in the morning somewhere in a cafe in central London, but we're doing it remotely, so whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Covent Garden, London, which is where I live. So that's a great thing, Charlie, so you've been doing television all around the world and you're still very much settled in London, even though you've got all these homes... Are you in London right now because of what's going on in the world, or are you there for business?
0: Uh, I guess a bit of both, basically. I'm not not really travelling at the moment, there isn't any travel, and I love London, so why not?
1: You love London. okay? so for those that don't know, in the UK you're kind of a big deal in television and theatre, TV shows, uh, perhaps you can tell us about how it all began for you, and I guess you know, some of the biggest, biggest successes that you've had. Because this show is all about taking a chance, right? Um, understanding risk. But actually, without risk, there is no success. And what we want to try and get across or explain to those guys and girls at home is you need risk to get reward. <laughs> so let's kick off with, you know, how you started, I guess, Charlie, in the world of television and producing in particular.
0: Yeah, so I trained as a journalist on a local paper. That's what I always wanted to do, to be a written journalist. And then I saw a job at London Weekend Television, which was an ITV company back in the day when there were ITV companies, which was to be a researcher on a comedy news programme. I went to do that and realised I was rather suited to um, television. I knew how to make programmes, I knew how to tell a story, a lot of the same skills as in journalism. Then i went to work with various other people on shows which were journalistically based so with little stories i did films about the new romantics i did uh, story, stuff with janet street porter you know interviewed ken livingston all of those people back in the 80s and then one day janet street porter of a janet street porter fame said come and work for me on this new show which has never been done before called network seven and that was a Sunday morning magazine show, um, which really looked like it wasn't going to be any good at all, but turned out to be rather a success. And in a way, you're talking about risk versus reward. Well, that was that was a risk. I didn't know what I was going to do. That was a risk for Janet. She didn't know what she was going to do. But actually, you know, the reward was it won a BAFTA. It changed really what Channel 4 thought about news programmes. Um, it changed actually the way... Program TV programmes looked, and it enabled me to think, actually, I'm rather good at this. I can do this on other things. And so I went on to do other shows um, on my own, uh, the first one being a really failure, big failure called Club X, which was an arts programme. It shouldn't have been a failure, because in some ways it was quite good, but you learn a lot from your failures. Then I did a show called The Word, which was a sort of late-night show... Aimed at a sixteen to thirty-four year old audience, which was kind of chaotic and mad, but <laughs> had all the latest bands and music and entertainment and uh, stories, mo- uh, movie stars. Um, then I went on to do a show called The Big Breakfast, um, which, which everyone obviously knows. Hopefully, uh, certain generations yeah. certainly know, which was kind of turning the idea of breakfast television on its head. And um,
1: but these make, are all live television at this point. This is live all TV. Live so TVs. you've gone. So you've gone from doing... Was it pre-recorded to begin with, with uh, Janice Reporter and then...
0: Club no, X, it was, was that a mixture. Yeah. I mean, it was basically what I was... All these shows were magazine shows, so the main element was live, uh, mm-hmm. with filmed inserts in, and I was rather good at doing both. I mean, without sounding arrogant, I just picked it up very quickly. and well, Live television in particular? Live, but also pre-recorded stuff. I knew how to tell a story. OK. And
1: I suppose the pressure of live means that you keep moving forward.
0: Yeah, but, you know, there's pressure of a deadline. I mean, every Network 7 was a two-hour programme every Sunday, and it was incredibly under-resourced. And I often think, actually, when you're not resourced, it's often better. Anyway, it's a two-hour programme every Sunday, and we had to deliver something. And, you know, if you'd looked at the ideas list in week three, we'd used every idea we thought about, and then we just regenerated, you know. And that's really... It's not, you know, you start to plan a bit because you understand it. But the word was also a magazine program. Big Breakfast was a magazine program, but the core of it, the framework, was live. Very planned, but it was live, and you know, you have to make decisions. You have to make it. You had to, you had to know your audience. You know, you had to make it fun actually, because uh, it was kind of quite stressful for everybody working on it. Um, I ran a big production company in the UK in the nineties. Called Planet Twinkle, call. yeah, very big with uh, some very famous partners. Uh, yes, so Lord Wahid Ali and Bob Geldof were my partners, mm-hmm. and you know we were uh, we were kind of out there, not in the no- normal sense of production companies, but, but but we were doing different things. We were quite uh, ambitious in what we did, uh, and we sold that to ITV. In can, I, 19- can I just go
1: back a step, Charlie? So yeah. when you first a journalist, obviously you know a bit about this. You've told me in the past, but how long was this period from going from being a journalist on a relatively small, you know, publication? The Ealing Gazette, yeah, Ealing Gazette, right? Which, for those around the world listening, may not know is a a borough of London, yeah, with a distribution
0: of how many people would have read that, do you think? Well, at the time, it was probably quite a lot. I doubt anybody reads it now, but it was probably Mm -hmm. 100,000, you know, 100,000. So, television when you were making
1: it was possibly more competitive than it is now because you had less channels, yeah, uh, less choice, and maybe the standards, were they higher than they are now? Would you say? Uh,
0: no. I mean, it was definitely fewer people could get into it. There were fewer channels. Uh, the standards were... Uh, I actually think, because media was relatively new, you know, the idea of television, working in television, you know, something my parents wouldn't have understood, really. They never really understood what I did. (laughs) Um, And it was relatively new. So, weirdly, it was quite accessible for people who didn't come from a background of television. Unlike the film industry, which had been around, you know, for 60-odd years, television was quite open, much more open than it is now. So you'd get quite a lot of interesting oddballs who worked in TV, I mean, on the 6 o'clock show, the show which I got from Ealing Gazette, were some great people. I mean, Janet Street Porter was there, uh, but also there, Paul Ross, also there, Jeff Pope, you know, who's an amazing writer, who, actually, he was on the Ealing Gazette too. You know, it was kind of filled with great people, basically. Uh, Greg Dyke was the editor when I got the job, and Greg Dyke ran the BBC. So it's kind of like a, you know... But, of course, being smaller, it was a melting pot. It meant that you got access to great talent you had a lot of power television was much more powerful than it is you know people would kind of kill to be on television really but that changed over the 80s and into the 90s so it we're became... going back to the early 80s this been yeah job. we're going back to the early 80s my job at London Weekend was in 1982 mm. uh Network 7 was 1987 but you know yep. you the, the, no, and Network 7 represented a big change in a way because it was Channel 4 and it was opened out by 1990, I don't know what year it started, but 1994, maybe, Channel 5 was there, and then, you know, the whole sort of, you know, digital channel revolution started with kind of cable... You know, so so that whole period was a period of change and access change. I mean, having Planet 24 as a production company, I suppose that would have been your biggest
1: business, I guess, because you had hundreds of members of staff of occasion... Yes. ...creating these programmes. Yes. And then you had the ancillary staff throughout the whole year yeah um did you have ambitions because i know you will get to it in a minute you you end up making shows overseas as well yeah so what the shows we're talking about right now are huge uk blockbuster shows watched by millions yeah at which point did you think right as a production company we should push on and move on to the global stage
0: what was that switch that made you go right let's go for this well, what actually happened was that the first episode of The Big Breakfast in 1992 uh, drew the attention of an American um, executive called Michael Davis. Actually, he's a British executive who worked for Buena Vista in America. And he said, oh, I really like this show. Perhaps you could do a version of this for America. And I thought, well, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> um, and so we went to do a version of The Big Breakfast for america only you know by the time i got over there they'd sort of realized it couldn't really be called the big breakfast because they had so many time differences they didn't really want quite the same thing but it was uh you know i got on very well with this guy and he said well we really li- i really like your work let's give you a development budget and see what you you know t- can develop for us and that's when it changed really you know i think there's a lot of you know, if people, have, if people like something you do and then they have faith in it, that's especially in entertainment, that's what happens. You know, you do a, you do a show and somebody sees it. You know, it's, I do theatre now and it's exactly what happened with um, the Bob Dylan girl from the North Country. We always had a plan to do it, but, you know, a producer comes and sees it in the old Vic when it's just starting and says, wow, this is amazing. Either it boosts your own confidence or you sort of think, actually, yeah, there's an opportunity here. So it's one of the strangest things to ask someone who's a creative
1: type, like yourself, incredibly talented at creating things, but really what you are creating is a business. So with it, you have payroll, you can overtrade, you have to look at your P&L. As you're creating these products, how do you balance now being a business person as well as having to be creative and, I suppose, in one breath, you just go, "Let's spend, spend, spend," because we want the set to look like this. Versus your financial director
0: saying, "How are we going to make payroll?" because
1: a... that's a big task to take on, right?
0: Yeah, it's a big task. I mean, in Planet, it's fair to say that Wahid looked after the business more than I did, but I always had an instinct about the business. And in fact, you know, on several occasions, it was me which realised you, you know, you had to do. We had to do some dramatic act to, I don't know, save the company or something like that. Um, I would say that you just have to have a one eye on it. I mean, the things I do, you know, I have the benefit that the things that I'm interested in are populist things. You know, I I want, you know, the things I like are kind of water cooler moments or where people's emotions get, um, you know, challenged. But you're also, in a, in entertainment, often relying on other people's finances. So, you know, you, do, you don't develop these things in isolation. So you're sharing the risk to some extent. I think the more difficult thing is how you keep your really good people who you've trained over a period of time, who have the same, um, you know, instincts as you, and who've got their own perfect taste for this, how you keep them when times are hard. And that's just a judgment. You know, this person we can keep, this person we can't. It's a very freelance business. But, you know, when you've got somebody good, you want to hang on to them. OK, so you've got judgment. But you've got judgment, but you've got experience too, right? So looking back,
1: we we, we kind of flew through the the various things you did in your early part of your career. Have you got um, a defining moment where you suddenly, it, it clicked? I mean, I know it sounds a bit cliche, but was there a moment when... Your fortunes changed
0: literally? I think the fortunes changed when we set up the first company, the precursor to Planet 24, it's called 24 Hour Productions to do the word. You know, it was the first time I wasn't employed, or I was employed, but employed by myself effectively. Uh, And. But, you know, I never had any doubts because, you know, you're, when you're young, you're arrogant, you're brave. You don't see the problems, if not that there were many. But, you know, I had a very strong idea for this particular programme. Channel 4 really wanted it. Um, and they let me go with it. And, you know, that was great. How long did it run for, The Word? The Word ran for five series. Uh, it was sort of about 25 episodes a series. So it ran from for 1990 to 1995. So and then you turn it to Planet Twenty Four with Wahid, and Wahid was Geldof. there at Twenty Four Hour production. Okay, uh, Bob jo- Bob Geldof joined when it became Planet Twenty Four for the Big Breakfast because we wanted to have Paula Yates, and we had to convince Channel Four that we were bigger than we actually were. You know, it, mm-hmm. I mean, we were sort of young and brash, and definitely the youngest producers in the on the scene, and. Channel 4 didn't really trust us completely with the <laughs> idea of a lot. You know, it's their breakfast programme. It's well, it's big budgets you're playing with, right? Big budgets, big Well, guests. they weren't that big. They were bloody tiny, actually. But it's <laughs> right. more the perception. And also, we had to wrench the show from the news department to the entertainment department, which was the biggest political thing. So Bob Geldof was a big card in that because at the beginning, we had... Inter- you know, he gave interviews with world leaders and stuff like Gaddafi... We also got Paula Yates as part of the package, which was you mm-hmm. know cool and trendy. Huge. So, so yeah. that you know, so really, and obviously Bob himself is a genius in his own way. So he added to the company itself. So you know, it was a it was an easy easy decision. There was, to... there was four of you, right? There were three, but well, there were three. four at the beginning, but there were three we worked out really that the, there were th- it needed it was 3 was better than 4 basically
1: so going forward because obviously you've got other companies now we'll come onto that after the break but having partners do you think myself having grown a business i always think it's been easier for me cuz i've got a partner well oh, it is, looks like whether a minority or majority or equal having that sounding board versus friends of mine who
0: do it on their own i'm always astonished that they can do it well i am too i mean I mean, some people are cut out for it, but no, having a partner makes all the difference because, you know, there was no question about it. We both, you know, there were lots of, bad moments during this you know and you need each other to do it and also you know sometimes when you're doing a deal you need to be good cop bad cop or sometimes yep. I need to be the creative and the other person needs to be the business person or sometimes you know I'm the one shouting in the gallery on the tv show and somebody needs to be soft soaping the agent so yeah definitely it helps having a partner but I also think in terms of you know, keeping your focus on the on the ambition, if you like, of what you are is good. I mean, I don't think, when I look back, I knew enough about it then. I certainly think, uh, you know, I feel frustrated. Enough about what, television or enough Well, about, about business. business. No, about the right. business. I mean, I knew a lot about business, but I knew how to make money. What I didn't <laughs> know is how to... I didn't think of it in terms of growing a company. I thought of it in terms of making amazing programs, which is not a bad thing by itself. But if I was doing it again, I would say, uh, look, this is what we want to be. We've got this amazing position, we're here now. In five years' time, we could do this. But what happened was when we sold the company in 1999 to ITV, it just fell on its, it fell flat, basically, because I wasn't running it. I'd sort of walked away thinking, oh, I don't really want to do this. Whereas in fact, That should have been the most amazing opportunity to do transforming into the biggest production company, you know, Britain or the world had ever seen because we had so much going on. I mean, I did different things, but I realized, you know, I was young, I was brash, didn't have any sense that that's what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was to make things. I didn't really, I wasn't so interested in the business, I wasn't so interested in money. You know, I've got no. You know, I had enough, basically. I had enough money. That was the... That's a bat. That's a killer. You know, so I had enough money. So I didn't... We had what? So you had enough money before you sold it or as you were selling it? Well, Well, no. Before we sold it, we were comfortable because money was coming in all the time. After we sold it, we were very comfortable and therefore didn't really need to do the work that we had when we did... You know there were you know you need you need sort of some kind of ambition if you like, some kind of reason for doing it, and you know the moment the no, no, no we suddenly had money, it was sort of slightly less interesting you know um, so how long did it take between so you're
1: making the word you've got the big breakfast planet twenty four's flying everything's going away, probably the biggest production company in the u k at this point, probably the biggest television producer in the u k maybe in the world possibly.
0: Don't know um, about that, certainly on, but, the, yeah.
1: certainly on the way. Well, you're your a Yeah, we were, we're doing...
0: We were very high profile and people knew hmm. about us because we were doing well, what was very process? cool programmes.
1: How did the process go? Because a lot of people listening to this might have sold their companies or might want to sell a company. How did you go about doing that? Well... What was the process like? Can you remember it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can remember it. I mean, basically, we... I've sold two companies now. Uh, and uh, in neither case did I go out looking, but people do. Sometimes you go out looking because you want investment. You know, sometimes it, you know, you, it's what I said about keeping staff. You know, you need you can see how you can build it, but you need money to do it, and it, the the quid pro quo for that is somebody will put money into it because they think, hang on a minute, that's worth it, and you know that's a very good way of doing it. Um, in our case, we basically... I was a bit sick of it, to be honest. I'd basically worked too hard, I think. And uh, Carlton, which was then, bizarrely, the person who kind of was the head of PR at Carlton, David Cameron, uh, basically came no, the to... the David us, Cameron, obviously. The David Cameron came <laughs> to us and said, we really like the look of your company. We think it would add to... You know, they had a terrible reputation and they thought that our company would add to their... would you know, transform their reputation. So, um, they came to us. What we had to do was produce figures, if you like, from the last three to five years, you know, how much money we'd made, what's, and uh, and effectively a prospectus for what we were going to make, what was likely, you know, certain programs hadn't been commissioned, but were nearly commissioned, some were commissioned, some returning series, and then they do evaluation based on that. It's really not rocket science. It's very simple. You know, it's very simple. Obviously, you have to have the buyer. And, um, you know, the buyer has to be interested. But you know, it's like anything. You build up, a, if, you, if you wanted to sell your company, if you had a company and you wanted to sell it, you want to build up a bit of momentum around your company. You make sure the right people start to express an interest. And then you might have an agent where you pay too much money for them to represent you, or you might go and do it yourself. Or you might, you know, sound out people who are in similar parallel businesses who might benefit from being involved with you. If you've got things that other people haven't got, that's a big plus. Carlton didn't have any good cool programs and they didn't have Wahid or I that was what that was why they bought it
1: great partnership right we're going to take a break we'll come back okay and I guess we'll talk about the sef- second chapter of your life and how the
0: second chapter the my future
1: life. unfolds even further and maybe you have three or four to go
0: okay um, perfect
1: right you'll be listening to Ball by the Horns. that's Charlie Parsons I'm Giles and we're sponsored by Shy Aviation see you after the break Shai Aviation and Lifestyle is the global leader in private aviation. Offering an unparalleled round-the-clock service, Shy Aviation focuses on every detail of your flight and are dedicated in making private jet travel as effortless as possible. With no hidden fees or membership costs, our pricing is straightforward and transparent. You only pay for what you use and when you use it. With global airport access, your travel destinations are endless. Plus, with our front door-to-jet door service, you'll experience true contactless travel, meaning you'll be at your safest with us. We'll even include a complimentary luxury lifestyle concierge for all clients. We're here to help you unlock the world safely, discreetly, and privately, and to always give you the ultimate luxury experience. Request a quote and start your journey with us today at shyaviation.com.
0: Welcome to Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers-Jones.
1: Welcome back to Bull by the Horns. I'm Giles Vickers-Jones and today's guest is TV impresario, extraordinaire theatre impresario, Mr Charlie Parsons. Welcome back, Charlie. Thank you. Right, so before the break, we were talking about Planet 24, selling it to Carlton, and that was, I suppose, a first really successful tick box of your life, the next chapter, like people may or may not know, is the TV shows you then created. um, In particular, Survivor. Yeah. Um, Was that literally after selling Planet 24, did you go straight into international TV shows or were you still making stuff
0: in the UK? Well, so what happened was, when we were doing the Big Breakfast, we got this uh, American deal And I'd always wanted to do a show set on a desert island because back on an earlier programme, I'd sent four people to a desert island. Uh, But I thought that there was a longer life in this because I thought you could turn it into a game. And, um, And so they gave us some money to develop it. And the money basically went towards working out some of the rules, working on a pitch document, uh, working on how we would actually make it, where we would make it. Uh, we even built a little island. And back in I uh, probably 1994, 95, we tried to pitch it in America. Um, they'd put the money in, but they decided they didn't really want it. And they couldn't really get their heads around what sort of show it was. Uh, it wasn't. At that time, in the pre-reality show era, you know, yeah. you tended to have shows which were whether well, you could have a news show or a documentary, or you could have a soap, or you could have um, a variety show with a shiny floor. But they couldn't really get their heads around it. They sort of liked it, but they couldn't get it anyway. So we, as a result, we'd had a, we'd developed the show quite a lot, and it sort of felt to me like the show which will get made. I knew it would get made. I absolutely believed in it. Um, However, when we got to selling the um, uh, company to Carlton and Survive, as it was called then, was on the list. They valued it at a pound, and I said, "Well, I think it's going to be worth a bit more than that." So I want to keep that out of it. Anyway, they wouldn't completely give, it, keep it out of it. They took a, a percentage, you know, an embarrass, anti-embarrassment clause, effectively. So if it's a success, they don't, they're not too embarrassed. They get some of the profits. And when Planet sold, I decided to get it made. And we got it made in Sweden and in America. Um, what network, I knew, like big network shows? Uh, well, it really started in Sweden, to be honest. In fact, I think it may have started in Sweden while we are at Planet. Basically, it was sold. We couldn't sell it in the UK. Mm. I, there were people who were interested, and um, uh, Andy Harris who was at ITV, took an interest. Andy Harris now does The Crown and stuff like that. Oh, and wow. he licensed it, but he couldn't sell it into ITV. Um, or rather, they said, we'll buy it, but we only want a special. But I wasn't going to do that, because I knew if it was a special, a two-hour special, sure. it would never become a programme. So I said no. But then we took it to the TV market, which is in Cannes. It's like a basically a market for TV programmes and a small Swedish production company said, oh, we like this very much. And then we went and made it in Sweden. And Obviously, on a desert island in Sweden? On a desert island in Malaysia. And uh, Malaysia, I was going to say, Sweden was quite yeah. impressive. Uh, well, it was on an island off Malaysia. Okay. And um, it was an instance of controversial success. You know, okay. it was, you know everyone talked about it.
1: What year was so this, still, by the way, Charlie? What
0: 1999, I think it was. So you had the 99. idea four to five years earlier... Well, earlier than that, because uh, you know you could really the genesis was actually Network Seven, which was '88, um, where we sent four people to a desert island. I mean, you know, I've still got the clips. But in fact, to turn it into a game, only really began in the mid '90s, um, and. So the Swedish success was great, and I was being hassled by this very successful—well, not very successful at that time—this a producer in America, a British producer in America, saying, "I really want to make this. I really want to make this." And I had wanted to make it myself, but then I thought, when we sell Planet, you know what? I don't really want to make it. Let me let me license it. So I licensed it to Mark Burnett. He's called yep, very we'll big know, successful. successful very big successful producer and from being a big hit in Scandinavia it became a big hit in America um, and you know it was very weird when I watched on the BBC News here I was in for the finale I was watching reports about its success without them knowing that it was a little British creation basically um, and that how Survivor much, how, much ran... the, how much of the IP if you like the property
1: ownership had you given away None, because it's. So was you licensed. still it, even though you license it out. You still got. Yeah, license it.
0: For, and... How it works is, you know, you you have a. Uh, if you've got an IP like that, you license it probably territory by territory, and that's what effectively we did. I'd licensed it in Sweden. You know, they have a number of years they can make it and sell it, uh, based on success, although it lapses back if they don't. Um, and that's what happened in America. But in America, it's been on it's in, in its fortieth season. So it's so you been say fortieth. Yes, fortieth season.
1: Four zero.
0: Um, four zero. Yes, they do two seasons a year. <laughs> on a bike and it's uh, on CBS on Wednesday nights. And how many nice viewers little. is that getting? How
1: many people are actually watching that? Do you know what?
0: Week? I don't know the number of viewers. I do know it wins its slot every week and still wow. is, you know, one of the big shows in America. And you it's still have
1: of... the ownership of
0: this. And no, because we sold the company. But for years, I ran a company, part time. It felt, which hardly had any staff, um, and the company basically sold Survivor around the world, and that included America. Or you know the what you know you're what you're doing. You're it's like a franchise business, I suppose. You're you're protecting the brand. You re- have certain requirements. But they run the businesses in those cases. I mean I would have made I made loads of money, but I would have made a lot more if I'd have made it myself. But I but the truth is I might not have made it as well. So yeah, correct. you know, it, it it sort of, you know, swings in roundabouts and it was a you know a big success. And what was great about Mark Burnett was he had amazing ambition for the show um and it paid off. How many countries at its peak was Survivor shown in? Well, Obviously, what would happen was countries would come in and out, in and out, but it's probably about 30, you know. But so, but it would move around, you know. So, and obviously, it's an expensive program. And although it can be done reasonably inexpensively, it's still an expensive program by some standards. So, you know, very small countries might try and license it and piggyback off another production, but it's harder for them.
1: Now, did you, did this. You know, running this business, did you have to have such a huge amount of staff
0: with you? No, or, no, no, no. Because you've no. licensed I, it out, I imagine you keep it quite small. Well, you know, the, the biggest stress about a business, in my opinion, is the staff. You know, especially in your, you know, they're constantly being poached. You know, inevitably they have problems. Inevitably there are all sorts of HR legal issues you want to keep abreast of. You know, it's I'm not saying don't have staff, but Survivor had no staff at all. I mean, I had a brilliant freelance person who was called Castaway, as it was called, had a brilliant couple of freelance people. I used an outsourced lawyer. I mean, it was a sort of model for a modern outsourced gig economy type production company in a way. And obviously that increases some costs. Weirdly, you're probably paying more for staff, but you're also reducing time spent on it and so on. I mean, some things you have to have staff for, but it was, it was, you know, great from that point. I mean, it was a very straightforward business, basically. I had a an expert or a couple of experts who basically went out to the productions and checked those things were going on. I kept, I was the center of it. You know, we occasionally had legal difficulties. We had to deal with, it was a very simple, easy thing. I could do other things alongside it. So when you say legal difficulties, have you got a memory of,
1: well, a moment where you thought it could all go wrong, you could lose everything? You ever had that? Uh,
0: No, I've always been pretty sure it'd be fine, but there've been annoying moments. Like, you know, with success always comes people who want to sort of sponge off that success. So, you know, I had to go to a court in Israel because one of the other, um, because basically, they there was a big dispute between two potential licensees one of whom claimed that the other one had stolen it from them it's a huge program in israel by the way it's like still is oh it's huge it's huge wow. I, it's huge in a number of places but um I, you know so i had to go to a court in israel i had to go to a court in in holland i mean i you know weirdly <laughs> there was a whole there was a time when i was basically going on to, you know seeing lawyers and going to courts all the time. I had to do a court case in New York. Um, so, was this, you know, so, was this it,
1: all over one set period, or was this over the whole, I suppose, 20 over, years? Wow.
0: Well, uh, you know, at the beginning, more at the beginning, because, you know, it, was, it, it sort of settled in after a bit. But um, uh, the Israel thing was actually, you know, towards the end. It was, you know... Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it's part of the business of licensing is you're protecting your brand... You have to be on the right side of protecting it. If you let it go, then you're, you're not able to own it.
1: Did you find it hard, obviously, you had the big bigger business with Planet 24, potentially you might have had a financially bigger business now with your production company Castaway, making Survivor. Did you miss having all those moving parts? Did you miss that day-to-day or having sold that company, looking back are you, glad you're out of it?
0: I didn't miss those bits. What I missed was it's very nice to... I mean, I miss the creative team. You know, actually, film, TV, theatre is quite collaborative and it's very nice to work with people. And when you're working at home, you know, it's a different thing if you're, like, writing a pitch document or something like that, writing at home than writing in... um, in an office. And you miss the social and the gossip and going in and having a purpose and that will go on. As for the sort of the boring, you know, admin employment contracts, negotiations over salaries, uh, insurance, boring, boring, boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not interesting. So you
1: have so television and then you mentioned it at the beginning of our chat theatre now, which is something you've yeah. been doing can't rely here, maybe fifteen years would you say? 12, 15 quite years. Quite a long time, yeah. Ten yeah,
0: 10 to 15 years. Is yeah, I mean, is gap. that
1: quite a big pivot for business regardless? Is it
0: similar to television or have you literally had to diversify hugely? It's weird, it's amazingly similar in a way. Right. Um it's not it's scripted, which of course I now realise I should have done, you know, if we'd have been in Planet, I'd have done scripted. Um but it's scripted, so it takes cu- kind of a lot longer. Um And it's full of very talented people, which is great, who will all end up probably doing films and TV because it's paid more. Um, And it's got the bit I really like about TV, which is, you know, the audience reaction. You know, what I loved when I did The Word was you'd go to the gym on the next day and you'd hear people talking about what was on The Word. The water cooler moments. The water cooler moments. And this is the same only you see it in you know you see them laughing at the gags in the theater or you know you you see a good night and you know the audience is walking out and you can hear them appreciating it uh it's also the other thing about theater which i really like is you're much more in contact direct with your audience one of the problems with tv is there's especially what has happened is they've built layers and layers and layers of infrastructure so Nothing, no decisions get made quickly. There's too many cooks. You know, creatives aren't respected as much as they should be. Um, You know, and it's a problem too, because lots of money is diverted to these people, but they've often never made a program. Um, I mean, it's a slight generalization. Of course you need those people, but I think, it. you know, if I was running Channel 4, it would be so streamlined because you, you know, make a decision, you just make a decision and do it. You accept there's gonna be some risk, you can't keep talking about it. You have to just make it. Um, and uh, so I love theatre because basically you be- develop it. You know, you've got a bit of money, you develop it out of the money you might have made. You say, this is really good. You ring up the theatres and say, are you interested? And you do a tour. You know, it's that simple. So theatre's where your heart is now. You're
1: not doing television anymore? You've kind of swerved that now? Well, and you've I, left Well, actually, bubble over. that's...
0: We're doing, I am doing a bit, um, I've got, uh, I, I, we're in the, we've runaway entertainment, the theatre thing, realising that it has some, some of the things have uh, television potential, we're doing mm. a bit, we're developing things, and I'm also doing things, you know, supporting another company which is um, pitching for more entertainment shows and the like. So
1: you haven't gone out gracefully, retired the two times you sold your companies, you haven't stopped basically
0: why well, isn't you a, keep going i had a few i had a few breaks and things when i wasn't sure what i wanted to do so mm-hmm. i did go and do a st martin's uh, foundation course in oh, art you and did, i did didn't you and i did a sorry did that was a, how
1: many years was that you studied art
0: well it was only a year because i found it so annoying after <laughs> tv but i you know well, why, I, why was it I, so annoying I, well it's not i mean it wasn't very professional. It was a foundation course, to be mm-hmm. fair. So foundation course is really for people who have only just done their A-levels and aren't really sure what they want to do. So, But I, the, the thing which made me walk out, and I walked out on the last day, was um, they were supposed to be doing a, an assessment of all your work. And they, you'd got a scheduled time, so you had the all the tutors going around, looking at your work and giving you an assessment. And I had... Ten o'clock in the morning or something, and um, without even really telling us, they I suddenly heard. Well, we're not going to do it at ten. I think we'll probably do it this afternoon about five o'clock. And you just thought that's. I mean, I was still I was selling Survivor and stuff at the time, but (laughs) I just thought that's so that's so unprofessional just to tell you without even arranging it. You know, they may have just left school, but everybody's an adult, and if you don't treat people as an adult, they won't behave as an adult. Um, well, I, I was, just Charlie, I just I still forget that you went
1: to uh, Saint Martin's College. It is the strangest thing. You sell your company, and then you've got all this money. You can do what you want. And you go, best get back to school. <laughs> you just go back to learn. Well, but you that, know, but that, with, that's your journalist uh, in you, right? You always want to keep learning. Well,
0: yeah, I guess I do. I went to do an MA at, some, at Kings in history too. Um, Did you finish time. that? No, I did a year. I, lo- I, I Again, I found the teaching kind of not quite good enough. It was kind of lazy, uh, if I'm honest. Um, uh, I could always finish it still. I might not be able to after saying that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, the, one of the problems with academic life, which had changed since I was there, was basically the way it's funded, it requires foreign students. It requires a large number of foreign students who... N- you can't absolutely say are there on academic merit and often don't have the language skills to do it. So at St Martins, for instance, you know, you'd know, you be sent off to go and look at an exhibition, which would be really great, and you'd think, oh, you know, let's talk about it. And you'd be the only one talking in the room, and you'd sort of... It was wearing, basically. It's like being um, in a gallery. About, well, a bit like being in a gallery. Anyways, but, you know, it was good. I, I, I needed the break, and... Uh, You know, I I realise now that actually, you know, working is really, you know, if you, you, I've got an amazing deal. Really, I don't have to work that hard. I work in my own time, as as much or as little as I want. That means I, um, I don't need to be paid. Um, So, you know, I've got, I'm involved. It's my company partly, but I don't need to be paid. And that all that means is that I can do what I want, spend, the, concentrate on the things that I really think I can add to and other people could do the things I can't. Have you got a, you know, when you
1: think back to all the things you've done and everyone's got a different answer for this. Have you got a, uh, gosh, it's really hard to ask this question without sounding like a textbook. Have you got like a secret to your success or a reason why you think things have succeeded for you? Because you've had multitude of successes and obviously the odd moment here and there with Israeli courts. But what is it? You know, you pinpoint it? Have you got something you do Apple differently? Cider to other Apple, Apple cider vinegar. Apple cider.
0: Great no, for no, digestion. So good. No. I'm with you every morning with hot water. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's, um, awful. it's awful. I think it's just about kind of believing in yourself, isn't it? It's the old classic thing, you've got to believe in yourself. If you believe if you believe something is good, you go out there and do it. Not everybody does you know, but I had the fortunate thing of you know, a number of people who believed in me, and that helped me believe in myself, and that's what it really amounts to. If you were to have the crack at it again from where you were, you
1: know, writing for the Ealing Gazette, um, and go at it again, would you still
0: succeed, do you think, or is it harder now? Oh, it's definitely harder now. I mean, as I said, you know, television it sounds incredible but it's absolutely factually true that it's harder for people who to get into television unless they've got a relative in television than it was i mean it's just harder and you know society is less diverse it's god knows why but it is so you know god bless them but you know my friends who work who worked with me at these various programs, you know their kids have all got into television, but I can guarantee that you know somebody from a you know Blackpool comprehensive whose parents didn 't work in t v whose parents are working in tescos wouldn 't have done it and that 's a terrible that 's a terrible shame for the industry and it 's much harder i mean i didn't i I had no real connections with journalism or t v and I could choose what I wanted to do and say I'd do it. Of course people can do that, but I just think it's harder, you know. And that's why you see so many showbiz families, so many actors who've got brothers and sisters who are actors, so many presenters who are relatives and, and so on. You know, it's because, obviously, it, it means it's a shortcut for the freelance production industry because they know that these people can deal with it. I mean, one of the proudest things I did was we did this Planet 24 graduate trainee scheme Um, and got people who really came from different backgrounds to go and work in TV and train them up. But there's not enough of that.
1: So with these riots and everything that's been going on in the
0: world, they've probably got a point. It is a lot less diverse. It's, It's a lot less diverse. The money is distributed very differently. You know, if you look at... I mean, you know... Various things have happened in the world, which means that actually the rich are much richer and the poor are much poorer. I mean, you know, and obviously what is poverty? You know, we don't have people on the whole without shoes as you did in Victorian times. But we do have people who are struggling to do three different jobs working at supermarkets or, you know, delivering for Amazon who are working on minimum wage it's really. Can you imagine so, it? You know, well, for a family. That's almost impossible. You know. Is. So what's the answer? Is there like a simple solution for this? Do you think, with well, all the I wisdom think, and
1: years of experience, Charlie? Well,
0: I, you know, you're I'm, going to be I'm, prime
1: minister now. What are you going to do differently?
0: That's well, going to be your next I, step, surely, mate. My next step, yes. Well, I absolutely think that there needs to be some redistribution of wages of of um, of wealth. And that obviously involves taxation, tax the big, the big, huge corporations, the tech companies, you should tax the wealthy, they can afford it. You know, if you've got if you're if you've got a billion pounds being taxed, even half of that, you won't even notice. Um, and, you know, use the money to basically try and create schemes, get people working, infrastructure schemes. um, I think there's lots of experiments going on. I think people recognise that this is a problem. It's a problem too, you know, I, I, Britain was such a great country when, you know, you lived next door to, you weren't living in ghettos, you know, and there's, I mean, not, we don't still, but there's an element of you live in your, you know, yeah, gated people environment. people say look,
1: the local environments with the yeah, people that you speak know, the same language, the same ethnicity and they're
0: not mixing yeah. so much no you know in a village even a village in gloucestershire you know you'd have you'd have people who worked on farms next door to people who kind of went and worked as a stockbroker you can't go back to that but i certainly think that there's ways of doing it i mean you know and there are strides being made you know if you look at um, june sarpong at the bbc it's brilliant that you know she's Pushing, pushing, pushing for a diverse uh, recruitment and training, and there needs to be a lot more of that. And you know, we should be enc- we are being encouraged. You yeah. know, the rules for the Oscars, you know, now insist that you have somebody from you know a minority, a number of people from minority backgrounds before you're going to get the Best Picture prize. That's fantastic. Well, what's so- going
1: on in the world though, Charlie? The way the world's having to reset itself right now because of COVID, because of yeah. You know, you talk about, you know, taxing the wealthy. Right now, how is everything going to be funded? How are people going to get off the bottom shelf, if you like, and climb the way up when it's so hard? I mean, it's even tougher, right?
0: Or is it now a chance to reset? Oh, it's a total chance to reset. It is even tougher. I agree with you. But in a way, you know, it's an opportunity because... You know, when you have a Conservative Chancellor like Rishi Sunak, who's basically outperforming labour in the spending that they're spending on social things which are required, you realise it's completely possible. And I don't know what's in his head, but I imagine, you know, he's recognised the value of that. And although, you know, we're about to enter a horrible, horrible economic downturn, you know, the, I can't help feeling that it might, the resetting of the economy might be, might be really good. And I think at, people's attitudes have changed too. You know, people, people know that, you know, Google having a monopoly is not a good thing. You know, it's just not. I so think you're probably is, right. You know, isn't having a, you know, it's not a good thing. So um, it's good. So, Charlie, how can people find out what you're up to right now? Is there anything you'd like to plug, promote? Uh well, I have a website, which is always n- as up-to-date as it can be. No, there's nothing I need to plug or promote, because, rather, as you know, the world of entertainment is in a sort of weird interregnum. I'm developing lots of things, very exciting. I'm very pleased that, you know, some things which we're very excited about. But um, news on them will happen next year. So what's 2021 going to be all about for you, Charlie? Oh, I think a lot... Well, 2020 has uh, obviously been COVID, but that's meant that we've developed lots of things. 2021, we will see an original new play, uh, which we've commissioned, which is a sort of horror-based play. There's a touring production of a uh, TV show which has been turned into a hilarious comedy. And in on Broadway, Girl from the North Country, which is a play we did last year... With Bob Dylan Music, which has been a huge critical success, uh, but which unfortunately in 2020 closed after five days, despite amazing reviews. Will reopen. <laughs> amazing reviews, um, the best reviews ever. Ama- no, seen. really, ama- like unbelievably Good amazing reviews. Will reopen in, my prediction is it'll reopen in June next year. Good man.
1: Charlie, thank you so much for talking to us. I know it's difficult on a a Zoom call it's much better face to face but uh, thank you thank Um, you very much thank you so that was Ball by the Horns uh, and Mr Charlie Parsons who's a wonderful friend an amazing guest and an incredible human being thank you